We are entering a new age, an age demanding greater collaboration, enhanced creativity, heightened agility. Welcome to Agile and Beyond, a podcast for agile enthusiasts, design thinkers, team builders, and organization designers. With practitioners and thinkers, we explore the future of work, the evolutions in leadership mindset, and the revolutions in the human-centered innovation around experience and purpose. In this wide-ranging conversation with Donna Jones, business transformation specialist, decision-making expert, and organizational designer, and the author of Decision-Making for Dummies, we cover life's interruptions and changing social values, leadership and self-responsibility, the intelligence of groups and community building, regenerating ecosystems and evolutions in consciousness, alternative organization designs and personal fulfillment, and much more. You may notice in this interview that at times I sound unnatural. For example, most of my stuttering is absent. Unfortunately, I was forced to re-record my side of the conversation as my voice was gravely distorted. A bad microphone connection, perhaps. Whatever the cause, this conversation with Donna Jones was too interesting not to share. Feldman and I'm here with Donna Jones, transformational specialist, and this is our first real-time conversation. We connected the first time on LinkedIn, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was something I'd written and you responded and then we just uh, connected from there, so it was cool. Right, right. You've published 75 podcast episodes. You've published Decision Making for Dummies. You've traveled the world going to conferences, including Milan, Stockholm, and you just recently returned from Agile Games New England in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Yeah. How did an English major and a Northern Ecology major end up as a business (laughs) transformation, decision-making, organization, design consultant? Oh, thank you. What a what a what an interesting question. It's like the arc of one's life, right? <laughs> um, you know, I think the short answer is that when you start out, you 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 sort of are operating through the lens of making your way through the world, and sometimes the world is exceptionally confusing. And then at some point, there's a realization that you're here for. I'm, you know, I was here for for a, a different reason, and. The signals for that for anybody, I'm sure most people listening to this can relate, but but you all of a sudden at some point you realize that how you think and how you see the world is not the same as everyone else. And the assumption we always make is that it is. <laughs> and then along the way you go, oh, how did you get to there from there? You know, so so the conclusions people draw or the the actions that they take don't have any connection whatsoever to um, what they're saying or, or, or thinking. And, and so it's that place where you realize I'm here for something bigger. I just need to get clarity on what it is. And um, for me, you know, um, so you stumble through life to, you know, you careen through it or however it happens. And, and then you have enough interruptions, what I call interruptions in life that you sort of go, you know, and those are all great places to re-examine. You know, you, you lose your home, there's a financial crisis, there's this or that. And those are places where you go, well, who am I really? And what do I want from life? 
And, and what do I want to give it? You know, what is my role in this in the bigger, what is my place in the bigger picture? And, and I think for me, um, that lens had always been there since the, probably the early, well, actually, no, it, it goes back a long ways and, you know, decades. Um, but I didn't fully put everything onto it until about 13 years ago, 14 years ago, when I just said, all right, I, I'm going to have to up the level of leadership in particularly business because, and when I say up the level, it sounds arrogant. That's not the point. The point is we need to lead differently, see differently in order to make better decisions that, that really look after the place we live in. So, so that's when it all came about. Now, whenever you make a decision like that, which is boils down to, you know, we're going to change how we see the world and therefore how we think about the world. It's a mindset shift. Um, the first thing that happened to me was pretty much everything that I had as security just disappeared. So, you know, my work vanished. Uh, I couldn't do the work, the old work I'd done because it was, it was, it just, the client base disappeared, but, but also it was work that I was exhausted by, you know? And so it's, if it's not giving you energy, it's, it's not healthy to do. So, you know, I went and I started losing things. I lost my retirement state, all the things that, you know, I'm a boomer. So all the boomer values just kind of drop, you know, okay, well, I can be really depressed about this, or I can just fall into it and learn from it and treat it as an adventure. And, and that is, you know, that's my family's version of it. And you know, my father was a freelance movie photographer. He did wildlife stuff. And so you just kind of go, well, let's just fall into it. And it's never as easy as I'm saying it because you hit the walls of fear repeatedly, you know, especially when you run into societal judgment about what you should be doing. You should be a breeder at Walmart. You should be desperate. You should be depressed. But instead, you choose to be something else. Uh, you choose to choose your life, you know, to choose your emotional reality. And that was my my decision. And so that part of it has been pretty intense since about I lost my home in 2009. And I've been living on the road, um, you know, cat sitting, dog sitting, house sitting, staying with friends for since then. And, and, and basically working back toward getting the voice being heard and, and also um, finding waiting for the, you know, to a degree, you're waiting for the awareness for management awareness to kind of go, we can't keep doing what we've always been doing so that's we're at the place where that's starting to emerge now um and all the stuff around you know we talked about agile new england we talked about uh, agile games we talked about the conferences the european organizational design forum conference in italy last year and it's not just about the conferences it's about the community behind it so there's this massive community globally who are really keen to help companies be better for the world and who are, are there, you know, strong and very, very skilled to develop that. So agile and, and is one doorway, but there's many. Um, organizational design is the other one. I'm doing a series on the podcast, the 75 podcast programs you mentioned that on self-organized companies right now. And there's a skill set that goes with that that's very much around self-responsibility. So you know, in a nutshell, really, this journey that I've been on personally is a deep one. And it, it really is the, nobody has to do what I've done to get there. Uh, I think I probably chose the hard 
path on every version uh, of life I've, I've been on. But when you finally find the path, you go, okay, we can do this so much easier. So a colleague and I, of mine in Germany, are putting together something called Le Le Leadership Discovery Camps. And that's really just about getting deeper. You know, there's a whole bunch of talent we don't even come close to accessing until adversity strikes. And when it strikes, we've got that option. And so, you know, that's really, that's really how, how it came about. That's all a lot, but. <laughs> well, now that's, that's fascinating. And thank you very much for sharing that. And I'm guessing that lots of people can relate to this, yeah, including so. myself. What interests me are the crises, the huge adversities that knock you over the head and shock your entire system and sort of force you to completely fail or to remake yourself. But in hindsight, what were the early indicators that you saw things differently or the sensations of annoyance that you perhaps ignored at the time? Uh, it's, a, it's an interesting um, way of framing it. You know, and the first image that comes up is, is when I was 15, our family went on a Volkswagen van trip around the world and we were in Africa and uh, traveling around some street. And it was one of those situations where there was an intersection and a car was coming at me. I was sitting sideways uh, facing the side door of this Volkswagen Combi and there was a car coming straight at the last minute it stopped just before the door. And, and that was one of those moments where you thought, whoa, that could have played out a bunch of ways. And so I discovered myself finding, you know, observing life through several lenses, you know, me and my body, me outside of my body, <laughs> watching and, and seeing a much wider view and remembering to exercise those lenses along the way. And I think that was probably the moment. And then, you know, I, I'm, there's, there's so many parts to this. I, I wrote a, I compiled all my notes at some point into something called, I called Diary to Destiny. And that was in 2010. I haven't touched it since. And there's a lot since, but you really, you know, what I realized is, is it's about coming to be, becoming the mastery master of your own destiny. And that's very much about choosing, choosing what you want and then bringing your emotional well-being back into alignment. And I, I with that, and, and I find people would rather turn, you know, would rather not do that. Maybe they, you know, it's, it's distraction with too many busy stuff and, but there's a place where at some stage you have to be really comfortable with who you are, with yourself, in your own skin, um, with who you are. And, and that is not in relationship to a, a partner, but, it, you know, a partner can certainly activate growth, but it's, it's being comfortable with that. So, yeah, it's, it's a multidimensional. I always, it's kind of a multidimensional journey. You're getting to know your body's a form of intelligence. You've got, you know, an energy field that informs. So there's so many layers to it and it's, it's learning to work with them all. Now you've spoken of this mindset change in your book, Decision Making for Dummies. And mindset also comes up frequently with your guests in your podcast. For this mindset change to happen within the individual, and then expand to the organization. Does everyone in the organization have to develop this multidimensional awareness for this transformation to occur? Um, you know, that's a personal journey, and it's it's something that people individually choose. But the reality is that when you put individuals who are focused on accomplishing something that's bigger than themselves that they care about, that shift will take place. It's a sense of belonging. It's an aspiration. It's, it's working for something 
um, noble and exciting and, and fun and, and interesting to work on. And we've seen it in big companies that understand this. We, you know, these are the companies that, that manage themselves knowing they're part of a living system as opposed to the traditional industrial model of companies. And so it, they, they don't all have to do that, but they self-select in for the most part. And the ones that don't um, might need a, you know, a company to look after them and just you know, care, take care of their basic needs, pay the bills you know, and, and, and look after that. But more majority of, I mean, the whole statistics around the lack of engagement come from <laughs> looking after the, just doing the basics as opposed to really engaging what people care about. So companies are just missing out. If they have poor engagement statistics, it's because they have no idea how to really uh, put something, a goal forward that people can care about and work toward. And quarterly reports just don't cut it. Agreed. So what happens when an organization has no greater aspiration than to make profit for its shareholders? Then what's going to happen to that company and what's going to happen to its employees in the next four or five years? It's a, a, in the next four or five years, we don't. I mean, it's hard to say. I think something like 40% of companies will fail in the next 10 um, and so, but there's statistics and this is a moving target. So honestly, it, it's a, the, the overall graph is down and at a rapid rate, Deloitte's put that graph out and it's been used a lot by Steve Denning and other, and myself and other people that have, you know, it, because it tells, it tells a very, um, it forecasts the, the story quite, quite well. So, you know, I, I think, um, when you get, when you truly believe that profit is your purpose, you are always going to be making your decisions within a very narrow frame. And most companies that are just focused on making the money completely ignore what creates the profit. So they, they, they ignore the relationships. They ignore the ethics. They, they, they get desperate for the money as opposed to actually uh, recognizing and, and building some trust in themselves. And so we're seeing thankfully, a lovely shift <laughs> toward building trust inside companies um, so that, and, and you're right, I did put this in Decision Making for Dummies. It's not a dummies book. It is a dummies book on the cover, but not, not <laughs> so much on the inside. Um, but it, we're starting to see that trust building come in because you, you can't have the kind of collaboration required. You can't have the agility required in, in an uncertain environment unless you engage that. So you really, you know, you have to engage a wider, much wider sense of purpose. And so Jeff McDonald from former VP of, of Unilever said in one of the conversations we had, it's, it's where, you know, purpose drives profit. So, and there's, you know, a few number of, of great companies, big companies in the world who understand that. And quite a few of those companies are aiming toward regenerating the natural systems as opposed to continuing to subtract and not count it, just discount it because we, we can't, we don't, the math, you know, the accountants don't know what to do with that. So they are the ones that are coming in and saying, we're going to leave, you know, environmentally this better than what we found it. And, and that is a long shift, but it's a longer shift, shall we say, but, but it's happening. So that's exciting. In your conversations with people in different generations, do you feel any differences what is your sense in conversations with millennials, for example? I, I love them. Honestly, I, I truly love them because they, they'll walk into an organization. I mean, I get calls from them going, 
what the, can you, you know, it's, it's on a coaching role. Can you help me with this? Because um, they're walking into these environments and they're going, can't they see this or are they afraid? What, what is it? You know, so, so the writing's on the wall in terms of, you know, the radical nature of the change. And the funny part is that the boomer, a lot of boomer executives who are simply waiting to retire, um, they're waiting. They're just basically saying, yeah, we know we can make this change and we know it's necessary, but we're hoping to wait it out. And, and I mean, that's a generalization and I can hear people in the background, no, not me. Great. If it's not you, then step forward because um, overall, what we've got is a lot of millennials in companies who are wondering, you know, they're just looking at it. Do we do what matters? Do we do we expand and, and, and do what really makes a difference in the world? Or do we just, you know, sacrifice some part of ourselves to, to, to do what's expected of us? And, you know, my short answer is do what you need to do because the world needs you now. Like step up all the way. And, and this, I have to admit, you've hit on a, obviously a passion point for me because I get a little bit frustrated with, <laughs> with boomers who just sort of roll back and say, oh, yeah, we know we've got, you know, the world's in a mess. And, and, you know, millennials that blame boomers, that's completely pointless. This is a systemic uh, arc that has been documented since the 1800s. It's, you know, we know we're on an evolution of consciousness. That's, there's no question about that. So blaming people is completely pointless. And the only way we can do this is to work together. So from a boomer point of view, it's not a matter of saying, oh, yeah, look, you guys are young, you're creative, you've got energy, and you haven't sucked it up and, and burnt your heart out doing what you hate to do. So, you know, you guys look after it. And no, we're all going to be working. We're all going to be um, in, in a place in the next five years uh, where change is happening fast, and it's happening in ways that people aren't even noticing, like forest fires, you know, like, like volcanoes warming up, like earthquakes, because, you know, you can only draw down on the, uh, on the uh, counting, you know, the, the life's, life's bank account for so long before it starts to crumble. Right, right. Resilience is compromised. Well, well, yeah, I mean, and for someone who is sensitive to these big picture global issues, what is your response when someone says, hey, the economy is not in great shape? Unemployment is relatively high, and wages have been stagnant for decades, and benefits are decreasing, and I am worried about just paying the bills, and you're asking me to think about penguins. How do you respond to such a concern? You know, fundamentally, it, it's not different from the psychological model of survivor versus co-creator. Um, survivors are people that just want somebody to pay their bills. And they'll watch TV and, and get all the goodies and put them in their home. And at some point, there'll be people to say, you know, I actually did come here for, for a bigger reason. And I, I want to I live that out. And so they'll make their decisions based on what matters to them. You know, what, what are their core values? What, and, and they'll be aligned with that as opposed to, um, I believe that I'm here to just take on a job that I hate and that I go to every day, but, you know, I'm fulfilling societal expectations of financial and social security. It looks like I've done what I'm supposed to do, but in reality, you're, you're just, you're so, you know, it's a soul sucking event. So, you know, we're, I don't know if that answers your question, but, but we're in this place now where it is a matter of stepping forward all the way, a hundred percent of the way. No, no, it, it does answer my question. And I like how you have redirected the discussion 
back to values. And self-responsibility. I mean, the, the kind of attributes or qualities it takes to to work in a self-managed self organization, which we're seeing more and more of, uh, are ones that aren't cultivated by traditional organizations. You know, it means having a lot of self-responsibility. It means having the freedom to make those choices. So with that comes the initiative. You need to have the initiative to say, this is what I want to do and I'm going to go do it. And, and work with others to do it. Obviously, it's not a solo thing. It's it's something that, that people tackle together. Tackling world poverty, Virgin is working on, or ch- child you know, poverty is their, one of their missions. So, you know, every every person or every company will have some kind of global issue, whether it's the quality of water in the local community uh, or something bigger or food security, in which case planting a garden. You know, there's some, there's so many layers to this. We could we could hit on every layer and and still miss some. And people will say, well, gosh, you know, is it just about that? Or they'll look at one thing like companies do. They say, oh, it's only about profit. No, profit's part of a much bigger thing. And so we're looking at the entire interplay of life. And I think that's very inspiring and very exciting. And it's, you know, for some, it's not daunting at all because you know that you love living life and, and uh, if you came to here to enjoy life and, and really, you know, then, then part of that is community and a sense of belonging and caring. And, and that is where it goes well beyond uh, I'm desperate to survive and I will do anything it takes just to survive. I'm going to make a segue here. In order to align ourselves to our values which may be in opposition to the existing status quo and to accomplish big goals through collaboration with others. Do we do that through top-down hierarchical organizations or do we abandon those and build something anew with a more flexible and networked structure? You know, well, first of all, if we look at it from an economy point of view, um, startups fuel the economy. So when we talk about job stagnation and all that kind of stuff, the reality is that 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 startups drill that, and that's a lot of the millennials and Gen X are running startups. They're they're they've kind of either they've been in the corporate and they go, okay, I've done that, you know, I've I've lost enough of myself to that, and they're moving into the startup community. So that's what drives it. And in terms of the big companies, we've had this conversation with my colleagues, um, in the, you know, many times in the last couple of years, and and generally the feeling is that because most of them are systemically so in, in, rigid, um, they, they will die. They will just fail as companies. Now, I prefer to think it's possible that they can actually not fail, but it does take a bold level of leadership, and it takes uh, a vision for that. We have examples of it inside big companies, companies like Microsoft, um, companies like Magna, Magna International, uh, you know, and, of course, Novo Nordisk, which is my one of my and then you know so those are examples of large companies that have under you know sort of developed at least pockets of it if not you know starting to shift their whole culture around will it be fast enough hard to say you know if if we reach the tipping point of climate change as early as as it's predicted uh it, it there'll be just a matter of everybody coming online very fast you know everybody will have to actually work together immediately so so there's a lot of systemic issues that we're facing, and the best way to face them is creatively, is to simply design a better system. Some of these companies, even before some major environmental disaster happens, 
may not be able to compete with newer, smaller, nimbler organizations. Yeah, that's correct. So when we talk about disruption, it's on many levels. I mean, I draw back to the ecological one because of the fires burning in Fort McMurray. It's quite present right now. But, but oh. you know, but it, with, if you subtract that, then there is an economic restructuring going on as well. And, and you're seeing a lot of companies, executives who are feeling, you know, people inside companies who are working very, very hard and nothing is really moving far. And, and I think that's fascinating because that tells us a lot about what, you know, how the past does not define the future and, and how past practices are actually not working in, in today. So that's part of that mindset shift that we started the conversation with. You know, so you're right. There is these places where they're not going to be able to compete with somebody more nimble and they're just going to, it will, it will crash. It, it, there's also the theory, and I've seen this read in Jeremy, Jeremy Rifkin's writings, that there'll be two tiers, you know, coming out of this. One tier of companies that are incredibly creative, uh, agile, think, and, and are always working, you know, fully engaged. You have to have full engagement. You can't have the authoritarian command and control structure to accomplish any kind of nimbleness at all. Um, so, so, you know, you've got that tier and then you've got another tier of more traditional companies. I don't know. Um, we don't know what will happen, but uh, from the economic, in terms of the economic shift, but the econo- economy is changing in accordance with some changing social and, and, and values overall. And, and it's much more, the millennials bring in a much more value centered approach apart from, you know, yeah, but much more value center approach. So, so I think that's a, a huge element in that dynamic that you just described. No, no, that's interesting. Are they rede- rediscovering the enlightenment or something? Is that, is that what's, <laughs> oh, that's a where, good... where did they get these values from that somehow the boomers and the Gen Xers did not latch onto? Well, I, it's a good question. I think this goes back to the overall, you know, evolution of, of consciousness, of awareness, which is simply, you know, in, 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 in traditional thinking, it was every man for himself and survival of the fittest, which was a complete misread of the Dar- Darwin, uh, discovery but business appropriated it and turned it into something that uh turned out to be quite brutal but 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 the point is that it, it it's it's um it, it it it's that shift underway i don't think i've i think i missed something there you <laughs> are you about. no no that's fine so one of the things that we talked about was what you referred to as the weakness in the 3.0 lens I'm guessing that you were referring to Motivation 3.0 and Management 3.0 yeah, and all these other 3.0s. And you were saying that we need Decision-Making 5.0. What is that all about? Well, you know, it's funny because uh, Stelio and I were rolling out some workshops in Europe last year, and we, we were naming it 3.0. And uh, we didn't have, you know, we, we got back and I thought, well, you know, maybe people just aren't realizing that decision-making is really the roots of all results. If you, if you look at any results that have gone well or gone badly, it, it's all going to go back to a decision. It's not going to go back to, oh, it's the market's fault or, or they didn't, the supplier did this. It, it's how we approach the decision. You know? And so decision-making 5.0 simply refers to a much wider lens and many more touch points. You know, have I thought about the impact of this decision on my suppliers, on 
um, the, my customers. And, and so the awareness level for working in both ambiguity and uncertainty and in this radical shift that we're in right now that, that um, some are aware of and some are not, is it requires just so much more engagement of, more, of, of anybody, any individual set of intelligences, but, but in order, you know, expand that to collective because these decisions are frequently being made in a collective. So we're smarter together than we are alone, basically. And, and, and so decision-making 5.0 covers the personal skills, but scales it up to how do we work together to really optimize what we bring to the table. That's interesting. This comes back to how we first started communicating on LinkedIn. There's an overlap in how we see the world, and you're coming at it from the decision-making lens, and your lens may be bigger than mine. It probably is. Wider, let's say. And whenever you talk about decision-making in your book, Decision-Making for Intelligent People, let's say, as opposed to the, <laughs> is that yeah. the structure is implicit in it. So when you are talking about how decisions are made in the back of my head, I keep hearing the word structure, structure, structure. Is it networked? Is it hierarchical? It's all this. It even comes down to a legal issue, which I guess was raised with the folks in Stockholm at CRISP with regards to sociocracy. Can you have an organization without yeah. a CEO, for example? Yeah, exactly. And I mean, those companies are, are looking at running things much more collaboratively. Um, so, so yes, they, they just got rid of the CEO position. That, and, but sociocracy is one approach. It's a sociocracy 3.0, the way James Priest uh, does it, is, is just a modular approach to becoming more flexible. Uh, we have, you know, there, we all need structure to work in. Structure offers a particular set of constraints and constraints can really propel creativity. But when it goes too far, it's being, it, it puts people into a straitjacket. And that's, and a company into a straitjacket. They can't move because of all these, these structures. It's too much. And so that's why that you're seeing a move away from the command and control, which to be honest, you know, there's some, I think there's a certain level of confusion. Hierarchy is just layers, but authority and, and delegation of, of decision-making at specific points of authority is what slows everything down. So you can, you know, if you look at any hierarchy, the, how performance actually takes place is in networks. It runs across the hierarchy. And so all you're really doing then is taking decision-making and saying, okay, instead of having it centered in at the management level, you know, we, we make it uh, more, every, it's decentralized. Managers take on a different role altogether. They're taking on an enabling role. They're helping integrate. Um, you know, there's still the legal part of it, which is, needs to be caught up, but you can still do lots of workarounds to make both, you know, make it work. Right, right. You bring up an excellent point here. There was an assumption implicit in my question where hierarchy and power go together. In a lot of traditional structures, the authority and the hierarchical layers are aligned. But you can have a hierarchy with distributed power. The Mondragon International Cooperative, based in the Basque region of Spain, is a hierarchy that's been around since 1956. However, it's a democratic workplace, so the team actually hires the boss and every year, everybody in the organization decides whether to retain the CEO or to hire a new CEO. Yeah, fantastic. So it's a hierarchical organization, but the authority has been redistributed. 
Yeah, that's and that's, that's exactly the well said. That's exactly where we're at now. We're distributing power. So that's where it takes it away from structure and brings it back to the individual because the individual question, if you're a manager or an executive and you're of the illusion that you are all powerful in the sense that you have control over decisions and over other people, you're going to be challenged to expand your, you know, your perception of yourself and, and expand your capacity to work with other people much more effectively. So it, this is where it becomes a, a very pivotal lead, leadership challenge to, to say, well, all right, I, I, I'm going to let go of this power and in return, I'm going to get rewarded by personal fulfillment. I'm way less stress. Uh, you know, there's a whole lot of rewards to it, but there's an initial fear that if I let go of controlling other people, who will I be? Who am I without this capacity to control other people? So it's a very, um, I think it's a very exciting, you know, point of, of growth for, for, for individuals and for companies because they, it's weaning themselves off of power and, and power over others and, and bringing in working with others as being the, um, the vehicle for, for change. This is really exciting. I'm guessing I'm probably taking up too much of your time here already. I don't know. Was there anything that you would like to add? How are you with time? I feel badly. We, we, you asked me the question about what are millennials seeing, and I started off saying that talking about the evolution of consciousness and then lost my train of thought. Let's just go back, if we may, and pick that one up. Sure. One of the things that I've observed, and I don't want to get, um, I want to keep this as grounded as I can, is, but one of the things we've observed is that the, the you know, if I look at my own daughter and, and, and youth that are pretty awake, they haven't fallen into the, to the conforming to the norm kind of paradigm. Um, these kids are, are looking at, they, they're much more aware, a much more, tra- they see transparently, like that's why they're going into companies and going, whoa. <laughs> and, and I mean, as such, if a company's smart, they would get those kids, get the millennials together and say, what are you seeing? Because we need to change it. And, and let's work together on getting, you know, sort of reviving the whole, redesigning the whole work structure system. So they're very good at transparency. They can see things easily. They're very good at um, seeing the, the, many of them have got a real global mindset, especially if they've traveled at all, they've developed a global mindset. And so now the question is whether, where's the best place for, for me to exercise that? Is it inside a company, which is what I'm expected to do, or is it to have the autonomy and the freedom to chart my own destiny, have a life, you know, choose my lifestyle, but also, you know, make a contribution. And that's why you're seeing so many millennials, you know, run startups because that's the easiest answer by far. Yeah. I was recently at the second meeting of a group called the Colorado Community of Agile Practice or the Colorado Community of Agile Health. Denver has a vibrant Agile community. These two Agilists that were giving the presentation were Jesse Perlman, who I'm going to have on later this week, and Elizabeth White. Elizabeth, a self-described extreme Agilist, said that if these large organizations don't change, they will be extinct in less than five years, either because they are not nimble enough to meet market demand or because the entrepreneurial-minded progressive thinkers in these organizations will leave and start their own organizations with a more attractive environment and will just suck people from these large, dying organizations. 
Yeah, that's absolutely true. But I'm also finding that even in the startups, you've got amongst the millennials and Gen X, you still have the, the, the intent is clear, but the skills and the awareness to create a culture, a particular culture of, of inclusion, a culture where decisions aren't made and then imposed, that skill set is still necessary. And it isn't, you can't take it for granted. So for fortunately, there's a number of, of millennials who understand that and they're stepping forward and saying, look, we need help with, with how we, how we, what are the mechanics for this? You know, how do we actually make these decisions so that we can create what it is we want to create and not out of, out of, um, you know, not, not create something, uh, unintended consequences. You <laughs> know, That wasn't what I had in mind. So, so that's, uh, you know, that's what I'm excited by because they are at least mo many of them, not all of them, but many of them are, are, are aware enough to say, I don't have the skills I need right now for this. An awareness of blind spots, an awareness that you have blind spots and to seek out people who can make you aware of them reflects a higher level of consciousness. Absolutely. A, and, a, and a huge, huge asset. Yeah. Yeah. Huge asset right now. If you don't have that, you will, you will definitely have an awful time. <laughs> <laughs> you'll face one of these crises right exactly like massive interruption yeah well is this a good place to wind it up is there anything else that you would like to add well we've covered ground we've covered a lot of ground we've kind of dug deep I, how do you feel is there any i leftover? i think we covered a lot i would love to do this again in the future if you'd be up for that i absolutely anytime anytime Excellent. thanks for setting this up dan i appreciate it it's my pleasure it's been my pleasure so how can people find you on the web? Uh, well, I'm at on Twitter. It's uh, at E-P-D-A-W-N-A e underscore Jones, J-O-N-E-S. Uh, my website's from Insight to Action. It's, uh, I'm working on it. <laughs> the podcast is, uh, is both on iTunes, Undertake Your Whole Self to Work, and that's one that I, Dan and I were just talking about. Re, you know, I'm repurposing that one, so that's moving forward. And there's also uh, 75 programs underneath the Evolutionary Provocator podcast on uh, housed on managed, cited on managementissues.com. So, yeah, there you go. That's quite a bit. And I also do, by the way, uh, business innovation webinars, just sharing um, ideas that people are working on to help business adapt and adjust, and that's under Show Sparks. S-T-O-O-S, sparks.com. All right. And Stosspark, does that have a European connection? Well, yeah, it all began when I think 21 uh, thought leaders, Steve Danning was part of one of the big uh, activators behind that, um, were in Sto Switzerland. And they met together and sort of said, management's a mess. We need to do something about it. And so Stos, this, the Stos Business Innovation Network came out of that. Um, it turns out there's multiple networks right now worldwide, which is pretty exciting. And I mean, that's where, you know, we talked about Stelio, Rosara and Cocoon projects and, you know, liquid organizations. There's so much going on in the world that's very, very exciting. And so, yeah, the Stos parts is just a, it's just a um, symbolic of a wider set of movement going on to bring business up to speed with what's going on in the world. Well, thank you very much for all that you're doing. I was so inspired to find you and to see all of your travels in Sweden and Milan uh, and then Switzerland. And I'm not even sure that our listeners know, but I'm in Denver right now and you're in Vancouver and we are talking over a Google Hangout. Thanks, um, Dan. Thank you very much, Donna. No, thank you. From insight to action, uh, it's sort of like a, a motto that we can all embrace, I think. So, yeah, thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it.
All right. I look forward to having you on again soon. You've been listening to Agile and Beyond. Visit agileandbeyond.co and subscribe on iTunes. Until next time, keep evolving.